Hey, it's Dave. So welcome to a live stream. This is going to be episode number 700. Can't believe I've been doing uh, YouTube for that long. I think I started back in December of 2019 or so. Yeah, almost about three years ago. Um, so today I want to talk about um, Tesla price targets. And I want to give a different angle than what's typically shared about Tesla's or Tesla price targets or just stock price targets in general. Um, before getting into that, share a quick personal update. So the past few months, I've, I've been taking a couple trips to Mexico with my family, my kids, wanting to get them international exposure. And as I'm taking them to kind of a new environment, um, they're learning new things and they're getting interested in Spanish and they're learning um, also other things through other apps as well. But it, it really speak, uh, spiked my interest with education apps and specifically language learning apps. And so um, the past many years, probably, I don't know, four or five years, I've, I've had a personal like full-time developer, software developer in my small company that I run um, is where we do iPhone, Android, um, app development. Um, but I've always had a person who kind of works on some personal projects, like hobbies of mine, things I want to learn, prototype, et cetera. For the past month, I've been prototyping a language learning app, and this is getting really interesting. Um, this is the first time I think in four or five years that I've been as excited as I am regarding a software project. So I don't know, it's still in the super early uh, innings. Um, we're just testing out some ideas, but things are coming together. And I think the, the field of education is ripe for not just for disruption, but I think it's going to be a huge impact around the world, impacting all ages, you know, all geographies, all languages, et cetera. So just wanted to share that. All right. So the idea of this live stream came from this tweet that I just um, read uh, about 10, 20 minutes ago, and it's from Martin Vietje. So he's replying to Sawyer Merritt, um, who had a Rivian tweet, and he said that uh, Martin Vietje, who's the head of investor relations at Tesla, he said he used to cover Tesla and autos from Redburn as a sell-side analyst near, nearly seven years ago. And then Mike Plate says, so Martin Vietje, if you were to put your analyst hat back on, what would your Tesla price target be? Martin Vietta replies, price target, probably not the best way to look at companies for truly long-term holders. I would probably look at how much profit will this company generate in five or 10 years? What's a fair multiple? All right. So I wanted to dive into kind of this idea of price targets and I wanted to um, share kind of why I'm hesitant and I've always been hesitant and reserved on kind of blasting a price target and um, whether it be a one year or a five year or a 10 year price target. Um, and here are some of the reasons. Um, after I share kind of my initial thoughts, let's take, we'll open it up for some Q and A on Tesla or investing or any other topic on your mind. So the first thing about price targets is they tend to be um, usually about 12 months out. So a year out or so for most analysts. And um, first thing is they tend to be more short-term oriented. And the reason why they're 12 months out is because most analysts, most investors are looking for their annual kind of returns. Like they're judged, they're, they're getting bonuses off of their next 12 months, right? Or the next year. And that's the most important. That's basically in the investment world, right? The most important thing is what you can get in terms of return for the next year. However, when you look at just one year out, it's a little bit short-term because you're not really taking advantage of what's going to happen five or 10 years out. Right. And of course that's hard to, to predict as well, but in the short term, a lot of things can change that could radically impact the stock price. Like for example, you can have a big turn in the sentiment of the market, or you can have some big macro events happen. 
right? And a lot of these events, external factors outside of your control will impact the stock price more than the performance of the company. Let's say the company can be doing great. They can actually be improving profits or margins or revenue, but let's say the macro turn takes a turn or there's some sentiment turn and that completely messes up the stock price. So you have to think, you know, what's the point of a one-year price target when there's so many things outside of your control um, that you don't have and that can impact right, the stock more than you think. The second thing is a lot of analysts, and I don't want to say the word most, but it's probably true, but a lot of analysts tend to follow the stock price. And what that what I mean by that is if the stock price is shooting up, then analysts will just raise their stock price and they will give a million and one reasons why they're raising their stock price. But in the end, if the stock price wasn't rising quickly, they wouldn't have raised, they were not going to raise their stock price. Right. Um, and when the stock price goes down a lot, then you have analysts just revising their estimates, like, you know, taking the stock price down and, and it's completely unrelated oftentimes to the company's performance. You can have a company that's like doing poorly, but their stock price is increasing. The analysts are all just jacking up the price targets and vice versa, the opposite as well. So you have to kind of question mark and doubt a bit of price targets in general by analysts. Like how much are they really looking at the company itself versus they're just following, right? The behavior of others and they're following the price of the stock. Um, yeah, there's so much mimetic behavior out there, meaning people are just following each other, like looking around like, what, what are you doing? What is he doing? And nowhere more can it be seen, I think, in the financial world, right? With analysts and those who try to predict, let's say, where the stock price is going. All right, third kind of point about stock um, price targets, and especially with Tesla, is the further out you go with price targets, there's a lot more uncertainty and many more variables that are going to be outside of your control that are going to significantly impact the stock price in the future. So let's take kind of a bare bones formula in terms of how you're going to get, let's say a price target or estimate. And generally you're going to take some form of profit, right? Whether it's operating profit or uh, net income, et cetera. And you're going to times it by a multiple that investors are going to give at that time. Now there are different ways of approaching valuation. Um, you, instead of giving a multiple, you could come up with some type of, you know, cash flow that's generated and then do a discounted um, cash flow valuation model. But more simply, you know, you're taking a multiple off of some type of profit figure. Now, if the company is growing fast or faster than many other companies, you're going to be giving a higher multiple for that company. But if the company is going slower, you can give a lower multiple. And the multiple is also subjected to many other factors. For example, it's subjected to the sentiment of investors at that time, how much risk they're willing to take. Um, it's subjected to the environment, the macro environment, the interest rate environment. And the multiples that investors give at certain times is going to be very difficult to predict because you've got all these unknown variables, plus you've got the growth rate, right, of the company, plus you've got margins, like how profitable, right, is this company? Is the market at that time going to be growing or is it matured? Um, lots of different things. And then you've got this, the big question also is the profit figure. How much profit is really that company going to be accruing in five years or even let's say 10 years out? So as a more of a long-term investor, the profit figure also is going to have a lot of variables and to accurately nail 
a profit figure that's more than even a year out or let's say several years out, let's say five or 10 years out, is going to be extremely, extremely um, difficult. And that's why I think when you hear price target, someone has a price target, a lot of people will be like, oh, they must know something, right? They're predicting something, right? The price is going to be like this in two years or one year or five or 10 years. But a lot of that I take personally with a grain of salt. And my approach is we have to look into the assumptions behind the price target. That's actually probably more important than the actual price target itself. So what do I mean by assumptions? What I mean is what is going to be driving the profits of this company? Let's say five years out, 10 years out. Um, what are the products, right? That this company is going to have, that is going to drive, right? Those revenue and those so-called margins and profits, et cetera. What type of competitive advantage does that company have? What, like, why is their competitive advantage going to be sustainable over time? Is, does a product or their service have any network effects, right? Some special, you know, thing as it grows, it gets stronger over time. Um, and also we need to ask the question, what could go wrong, right? What are some scenarios? of it actually, yeah, the company having a difficult time. Another kind of question in terms of the assumptions is the execution of the company. So one of the questions I ask often is, does the company have world-class execution? And what I mean by this is take some of the best executing companies out there, let's say like a Google or Apple, and ask the question is, if Google or Apple would come into this market and compete against this much smaller company, could the smaller company beat out a Google or an Apple, right? Those type of companies that execute decently well. And if they, they can't, then this company could have a serious execution problem because eventually these big companies, they run out of markets to address. They run out of, you know, billions of billion dollar, hundred billion dollar markets, right? To, to go after. And so they go to adjacent markets and things get crowded. And so as a company and a new company, let's say that's growing over time, you're going to have to grow significantly your addressable market. But by in order to do so, you're going to have to go into markets that other big companies are going to be vying for as well. And unless you have world-class execution, right, you're not going to do well. And I think a lot of companies, they falter and fail to continue their growth because they just don't have world-class execution. All right. Another assumption or thing to really question with, you know, um, uh, price targets is what is the product superiority of this company over the next five or 10 years? Meaning what makes this company's product inherently better or significantly better than other companies' products, not just right now, but over time, because you're going to have a lot of super motivated, smaller companies, startups, et cetera. Um, technology is going to change. Can this product be copied easily or not? Right. And this question of product superiority is a really big, important question. And so when I hear uh, someone throw out uh, a 2025 or 2030 price target, like, does that really matter, the price target? Because there's so many variables. Some of these other questions I think are more important. It's like, well, tell me about their product superiority. Why do you think their product's going to be so much more better and dominant compared to other products in five or 10 years? Like, what is your clear reasoning? that's actually probably more valuable than someone just giving a random uh, 20, 30 price target. All right, the next kind of assumption or thing to, I think, to ask and to really dive into when you hear price targets is the market size of the, or the, the addressable markets, right, that this company is going after. So um, oftentimes, um, the, the valuation of a company is capped or limited 
based upon what type of market they're selling into. And that's because like with any market, you're only going to get a certain percent of that market in market share. And if that market size is quite small and people aren't willing to pay, right, let's say a lot for your, for that type of product, your company's future growth is capped. So the question going forward for many companies is what is not just the total addressable market for the company right now, but in five or 10 years, how is that total addressable market going to grow? Meaning is the company in an area that is significantly right, growing its potential over time and isn't shrinking. Right. And also you have to ask what are the, what type of players are going to be in that new, uh, growing addressable market. And another big assumption is technology. So oftentimes technology enables new markets to form and enables products to significantly improve the value they give to customers, thus completely changing the dynamics of the competitive landscape in, a, in an area. And so. Um, when someone shoots out a 2030 price, he's like, whatever, you know, I, like, I don't really care. Tell me about that company's enabling technologies or what enabling technologies is that company writing, right? What's the wave of innovation? Um, and, um, how are they going to take advantage of that technology more so than startups? Because startups are super motivated. Um, they're hungry and they'll go after right new markets with new technology much faster than big and big bureaucratic institutions. So that's another question is, is, is the company lean enough? Is it nimble enough to take advantage of new technologies um, that will significantly expand market size and addressable markets for this company? And so thus, let's take an example with Tesla. You know, you might have a 2025 or a 2030, you might hear some price targets, et cetera, or you might even have a one-year price target. But some of the more important questions are, for example, with artificial intelligence, how much is this going to grow markets? What markets is it going to grow? Who are right the main players? Um, yeah, can for example Tesla take advantage of this technology faster than let's say a startup? And how does that change right their product? You know, can they have a superior product that gets better and better over time faster than even the newcomers or other even um, more smaller or nimbler players? All right, so these assumptions. Um, I think are, are tapping into some of the more core ideas of what makes a company successful over time, right? More so than just focusing on, let's say some price targets that, you know, it's, it's anyone's guess. However, I do think it's important to project one's one owns estimate. And by doing so, I'm talking about more simple estimates where you take the units of units that a company is selling of a product, right? Their annual unit. um, um, uh, volume and you times it by the price, right? That they're selling at. you get a revenue figure. And then from that, the company makes a certain margin, um, gross margin, and then they have expenses and then you've got operating profit, right? And I think just some basic numbers like that is important to, pr to project because you need to have an idea of what to multiple, to what multiple to apply, right? Um, the profit to. So for example, if a company is making, let's say, I don't know, $10 billion in 10 years, in your opinion, then you can now take a multiple that you think investors might give to that company, apply that multiple and get a market cap or value for that whole company. Now I get a lot of questions of what kind of multiple will, should you give to a company right now, but also in five or 10 years to get some type of projected value. And I think oftentimes, you know, it's a, these multiples are, are, um, 
are subjective in some ways where if the market conditions are going very well, people are subject are interested in risk more, you're going to get higher multiples in general. Um, but when a, when a company matures, the general rule of thumb is you're going to give investors are going to give a rough multiple of 10 to 20, right? 10 is, you know, pretty standard. If the market that the company's in is, is shrinking, if there's something really kind of, you know, stale about the, the market or the company instead of the products, then you might get a lower multiple than 10. These are, I'm talking about for profitable companies. For, not, for companies that are, let's say old companies that actually profits are shrinking, then you can get some ridiculously low uh, numbers because you're projecting, right, profits decreasing. But I'm talking about more stable, profitable, mature companies. Now, to get a 20 multiple as a mature company, you're going to have to show some growth, you know, over a typical 10 multiple company. And you're going to have to show some type of, either super solid product that, you know, that has a great competitive moat, let's say like the Apple app store, right? I mean, who knows if Elon can break through and actually change the 30%, right? Tax that's going on, but like, you know, certain things like Google search or, or YouTube, or there's, there's a lot of um, companies have super solid products that uh, back it up with decent growth, right? Let's say more than even a five or 10% growth rate, but they're growing faster than 10%. You're going to give these companies a higher multiple than 10 because as their multiple, as their profit grows, right, that increases, um, uh, the profits, let's say in a few years even, and, um, you're able to give, um, a higher multiple right now, right. For those profits. Um, so uh, applying this to Tesla, there's a lot of, um, variations. So for example, if you think Tesla can sell 10 million cars in 20, 30 or so, you can figure out some type of revenue figure by taking the unit number of cars times average sales price. You can put on your own gross margin figure um, with operating expenses and come up with a profit figure, right? Um, you can even hack it while you can have profit per car, right? Um, or general total profit, come up with some type of multiple for the company. But again, it's, it's subjective in the sense that your multiple is going to be dependent on how fast you think the company's growing, how profitable they are, what the market sentiment is, et cetera. There's a lot of factors. And so that's why, you know, a price target for 2030 is a really subjective matter. Now, what if you boost up the units sold to 20 million cars, right? That could double your price target. Or if you just, you know, change the, the multiples or, um, the prop margins, which changes the profits. There's so many factors. And then you add on new markets, let's say robotaxi market, or even optimist market, um, energy, et cetera. And you come up with a lot of different possibilities and variations that have a lot of different outcomes. And that's where I'm kind of like, I have my own kind of expectations of what I hope or where I think Tesla can, can reach in terms of, you know, their unit volume, their, their margins, their profits, and what I think multiples what I think investors can give in terms of multiples in the future. But I also hold on the other hand, kind of a loose hand where I know those multiples and, and the sentiment can change drastically. And also Tesla's trajectory can also change drastically too, in terms of how much profit and what kind of products they have. And so I tend to focus and revert back to what's underneath all this stuff. And what I call the assumptions, like what's the product superiority, what's, what's enabling technologies, what type of execution is involved here? What's the market size and how can it grow over time? Um, to, to, to really see if this company is kind of what I call a generational company, a company that can really, you know, not just produce a great product, but make that product a generational thing where it's not just me, but my kids are talking about that product. It's affecting 
all parts of society, right? Many, many countries, and it's having an impact even culture and life um, in the world. So anyways, those are some thoughts just on price targets. Um, I know there's been a lot of uh, confusing and um, uh, lots of drama in the markets uh, with Tesla, with Twitter, with Elon. So I want to go ahead and open up for questions here. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, uh, Farzad and um, a few others for being moderators, um, kind of cleaning up maybe some of the, the live chat. I've had some problems in the past, but hopefully I'll be okay today. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and um, check out, um, yeah, I'll just go ahead and um, uh, show some of the comments here on the screen. Let me go ahead and find the right placement. Okay. Um, Oma Mua says, do you think Shopify is a, is, is a good buy five to 10 years out? Yeah, I've, I've been fascinated by this, the company Shopify. I've done a lot with my own kind of estimates. I do the same thing. I go five or 10 years out. What is their revenue? What are their margins? What are, you know, um, the multiples? I haven't been able to really pull the trigger on a large Shopify position. Haven't been able to justify, you know, the, the appreciation expected just because I thought, you know, it was fairly priced before and, um, or fairly even aggressively priced in some ways, but with stock with Shopify, um, uh, uh, stock down, um, I haven't looked at it in the past few months. So it's possible that, you know, it could be entering an interesting, uh, place, but I don't know. I mean, that's the other thing is I don't feel like a need to, I, I think I have a, a tiny, uh, a small Shopify position, but I don't feel a need to, um, uh, kind of chase every, every company that looks pretty good. Um, for me, the most interesting fields are inter artificial intelligence. I just feel like that is the game changer for the next 10 years. And I know Shopify has an amazing e-commerce platform, but I want to ride companies that can really ride the AI, uh, wave and establish huge, huge kind of product dominance, right. With AI. And so those are, that's kind of my most, um, my biggest interest in it of, of area in terms of investing. Um, Aloha Pitchin says, do you think Elon should drop some info on the next generation lower price car? I think he actually shared quite a lot in the last earnings call, call, call when he talked about, you know, they're trying to do half the price, half the effort, half the factory floor space. That's a, a lot of information. You know, it really shows not just their expectation, but they're ready in the design process. Meaning he's not talking about this hundred percent aspirationally. Of course, it's all aspirational on some level, but what he's, he's saying it because they're ready in the design process. They're ready have figured out a decent amount of things. Meaning he's saying this because he sees the possible path toward that type of, um, improvements like 50% price reduction factory fuller space effort, like just pumping out basically double the amount of cars. Right. Um, I think that's been overlooked by most people. I don't think they really, you know, there's a trust issue. <laughs> a lot of people don't even trust what he, what Elon says, but, but it's not, I, to me, it's not an aspirational statement at this point. It's something that Tesla is working on and they see a path forward to make that happen. Whether they'll reach exactly that all their targets is, is remains to be seen. But, um, yeah, to me, that's one of the most exciting things about Tesla going forward is their next generation lower price car. And, um, I think they're, they're making huge progress on that. And I think a lot of that stuff is just being, you know, overshadowed by all the drama with the markets and, um, and, uh, Twitter as well.
All right, if you can go ahead and um, for those who want to ask a question, um, uh, go ahead and uh, type question in all caps so I could um, easily kind of spot out questions because right now I'm just looking through all these comments and um, it's hard to spot out the questions. Okay, so I'm just gonna scroll to, um, Yeah, Zuma92 says, Dave, when will you do a dive on Palantir? Yeah, I've looked at Palantir several times. Um, I'm personally not that interested when I compare it to what Tesla's doing with AI. I just don't see the same level of AI kind of chops and product superiority and dominance over time with Palantir. Plus, it's hard to get close to the product, you know, because it's more enterprise. Um, but who knows? They could be a great company. Uh, I, I'm not going to bet against Palantir. Um, one thing is, you know, there are some other companies in the field that I think, you know, folks should should investigate. Like there's some private companies that are quite large that are getting contracts, right, um, with the government, with others, kind of using some type of a similar model with Palantir. So Palantir had their first mover advantage. Um, will they be able to continue it? Yes, yeah, interesting um, question there. All right, Farzad says, if news comes out that Twitter can has become profitable, do you see this as a catalyst for Tesla stock, or do you think this is irrelevant? Yeah, so here's the, the thing about Twitter. Is I, first off, I think it's going to be a while before Twitter becomes profitable. You know, I mean, they're really far off. Like, I, I personally don't see it. You know, the goal is probably by the end of next year to be on a monthly cash flow basis, right, profitable or cash flow positive. I think they just, um, they have to change a business model that's been in existence for like, what, 15 years? I don't know how long, right? The advertising business model on Twitter is going to be a monumental task. It's not going to happen fast. And to build subscriptions, it also isn't a quick thing, right? It really takes um, some time. Um, and I think Twitter has to add a lot of value. So yeah, personally, I don't think this is a, a short-term catalyst to Tesla becoming, or Twitter becoming profitable. But what I do say is, yeah, I think the, the better t Twitter runs, right? And the better news we have out of Twitter, especially financially and operationally, that does help kind of Tesla in the sense that it gives people, you know, less drama and noise to complain about it. It's less of an excuse for institutional investors, right? To, to blame, right? The, the stock price, Tesla stock price on, and it kind of um, validates, right? Um, what Elon's doing overall. So, and the other thing I think about, um, Tesla or a catalyst for Tesla stock is, is this kind of sounds weird, but I think the stock price itself can be a catalyst. And what I mean by this is imagine if we are at a stock price of like above 220, right? I don't think we'll have, we will have as much kind of a noise as we do under 200, um, in terms of the stock price. So I think at a certain point, I don't know when that is, and it could be, we might have to wait for fundamentals, right? Really to kind of surprise people. Um, and for Tesla's business model to shine in strength further um, and to really um, put to rest some of the doubts of, let's say, can Tesla's business model really show its strength in a recession, right? Some people doubt that. So if Tesla can show that um, and if Tesla's stock price can, you know, rebound, that in itself actually can change some sentiment and which in effect can be its own um, catalyst. But a lot of it, it de depends, I think, on the macro situation and um, are investors risk averse as the Fed, you know, pumps up rates or will the Fed signal kind of like a change of heart and will that, you know, encourage people to take on more risk? Um, and when will that happen? Will that be 
the next month or two, or will that be like several months down the road? All right, Chris says, Dave, a few comments on the erratic behavior by the CEO, please. Okay, first off, guys, this is not new news. Elon has not been like a calm, a predictable CEO who says whatever everyone wants him to say. Okay, so um, it's um, it's uh, to be expected. Second thing is, I've learned this over time. We're not gonna, I'm not gonna change Elon. Like Elon does what he wants to do. Why would Elon want to change for other people? Like he's doing the thing that he, things that he needs and he wants to do, right? Um, so that's that's the second thing. The third thing is, Elon's gonna be making a lot of mistakes, and um, for most people, making mistakes is a big deal, especially on the public stage as the world's, let's say, richest person, but also as the CEO of of several right huge corporations as well. Um, but in Elon's mind, I think making mistakes is not that big of a deal. He's able to recover. He thinks he can recover and he thinks it's worth it, um, to make mistakes if it allows him to move faster, to innovate faster, to get things done faster. And I think that's why you have Elon making more mistakes. Um, it upsets more people, but yet he gets things done faster. Right? and better than others. So what you've got is you've got this interesting dichotomy that I don't think you're going to find in, in many CEOs, is you've got a CEO that's going to be making more mistakes short-term at certain times is going to upset more people. And I think with this Twitter acquisition, you're going to see that happen maybe even more. Elon will upset more people. But um, when you look at it further out, you'll have also a CEO that gets a lot more stuff done, that makes a much bigger impact. And he's proven over time not just to turn around companies where their products and services get better or their technology improves, et cetera, but he's able to actually financially, funda fundamentally and dramatically turn around companies where you can take companies that people didn't even think had a chance, let's say like Tesla back in the day and make them into a cash cow machine. And I think most people doubt what, what Elon is able to do at Twitter. Um, and you can focus on all the mistakes he's making and, yeah, I'm not going to defend his mistakes, but you know, it's obvious he's going to be making mistakes. He he has a big mouth at, at times on certain issues that later on it turns it turns out you know maybe it's incorrect, etc. But um, I think in the bigger picture, yeah, he he's he's operating on a different uh, paradigm, and that's um, um, one of innovation, of speed, of quickness, of writing uh, technologies, and to make a. a lasting kind of lifetime impact. And that's what Elon is doing. I don't think no one can dissuade him about um, his involvement in Twitter. He's set on it. He he's convinced that this is an important part of impacting humanity and the future of humanity. And yeah, it's going to be an interesting ride as, as, we, um, as we check this out. Robert Allen says, do you think Tesla board of directors will tell Elon to get to work at Tesla? To be honest, I, I don't think anyone really tells Elon what to do. <laughs> even at Tesla or the board, right? Uh, people know, including the board, that Elon, he understands what's important long-term. He understands the key priorities for Tesla. Um, the interesting thing is, if you think about it, what are the key priorities for the next five or 10 years for Tesla? Like, What's really going to move the needle? What's really going to drive their profits, increase their product superiority, increase their total addressable markets? I would argue that... Um, it's not the the common thought or common thinking that oh manufacturing right factories you know all that stuff to me that's that has a part but the bigger part is what is Tesla's um, what's Tesla's 
uh, position in terms of dominance with their AI expertise and translating that AI expertise into real product dominance where people are buying their products and services, right? And those products, um, can those products have runaway network effects or runaway right, product dominance where this, the, like, there is very little competition. Like for example, what's the second place YouTube? Like you know, it's barely out there. It's like, it's almost insignificant. What's the second place Google search? I mean, sure there's Bing, but it's, it's insignificant, right? So in, in a similar way, um, what really is gonna move the needle is can Tesla really dominate on the key enabling technologies and translate that into dominant products and services that have kind of these runaway as a network effects of increasing dominance over time. If Elon can succeed with that, then that is going to be the needle mover. And I think what Elon has done over the past several years is he actually has set that up. He set up the AI team. He set up the compute, the, the, the data collection engine with, you know, making hardware too in all cars. He's done these really bold decisions, pushing out FSD beta when most people, almost every single CEO out there would not have pushed out FSD beta like in the way that Elon um, has done in the sense of really um, wanting it out there quickly. Most CEOs want to err on the, on the side of caution. Um, so he's done stuff that's enabled um, Tesla really to have a crazy, I think personally, a crazy five to 10 year, 20 year future. Um, and that's why you know, and I think the board recognizes that, that Elon presents this unique character and he's a unique person that not many people can do that. Um, look that far out, see it so clearly what needs to be done and bring those priorities into the present with such urgency and to take this startup mentality, this like really just crazy work ethic and innovation and to apply it across the board, across the entire right, the company to drive those companies to build those core technologies for the future. This is really, really hard to do. Um, and I don't think we're going to find, you know, a replacement for Elon um, regarding that. And I think the board knows that as well. So yeah, Elon uh, gets to do what he wants because um, what he provides for Tesla is, is, um, has been irreplaceable um, in that sense. Um, yeah, what do I think of eVTOL stocks? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't really looked into them much. Um, I personally think Elon isn't getting into the eVTOL or electric vertical takeoff and landing market yet because I don't think he thinks it's ripe enough. Um, he, yeah, Elon tends to really understand kind of timing of technologies. And um, I think it could be a little early. It's interesting. I think battery technology and density is, is getting there. So it'll be interesting to see the new players, but also it's like, what's the business model of eVTOLs? Like, are we going to see some type of you know, subscription model, service model, like the whole plane model of just selling, you know, kind of these planes to others. And it's not, it's not that lucrative. It's kind of like the housing market. You just sell a house. It's like, you don't get recurring revenue off of that. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see in the future, how, um, these eVTOL workout, um, uh, business models work out. Uh, Chris says, Dave, why do you think uh, China blew records today and the stock hasn't moved? I, we're talking about uh, November deliveries, I think. Um, yeah, it's been strong. I think people are still skeptical about, 
you know, the China economy, if it could really sustain like demand uh, going forward into next year. A lot of question marks. Also, um, yeah, I think at this point with the whole overall market, uh, people are not really trying to jump the gun in terms of trying to um, give companies the benefit of the doubt. People are just kind of waiting for companies to announce um, poor results or guidance that's lower than expected, et cetera. So yeah, um, I don't think um, analysts and investors are really uh, that focused on a November, right? Uh, delivery number from China. I do think um, though it's interesting, you know, the dynamics where Tesla is, um, is, is now more, much more geographically um, uh, situated where you have, they've got the whole China, Asia, you know, markets, they have the Europe markets and the North America markets. And I think, um, each market is going to propose its own challenges, but also its own opportunities as well. And, um, yeah, no one's talking about this, but in China, it, there's a huge, huge market for, uh, robo taxi eventually. Now Tesla has chosen intentionally to not develop, right, their technology in China, they've been uh, doing it more locally where the engineers have control and they've been focusing on the North America market. And there are other companies like I was looking to Baidu, um, and just kind of their rollout of their, uh, kind of robo taxis. And it seems like the China government is, I would say, I would say, I would say permissive, but they, they definitely lean on that side of giving permission to these companies and actually letting these companies actually take passengers without a driver in the seat, right? In these LIDAR based as a HD mapped, uh, HD map, uh, uh, reliant vehicles. I think Tesla has a huge opportunity in test in, in China. And I think the strategy is you nail it right in North America to the place where you, know, you really get it down and then you expand into other geographies and other regions. And I think China could be one of the next regions that, that Tesla does focus. Um, their FSD. And when they do that, if they can actually, you know, improve fast and roll that out in China, that's a very interesting market that I don't think many people are, are factoring in right into, into their expectations for the future. Um, so just some, yeah, interesting thing there. Jason Vespa says, do you think Tesla could act as a black hole for talent such that it's difficult for competing startups to attract the world's best talent? Now, I think the startup uh, ecosystem is super strong. You've got billions of dollars of VC capital willing to put into new companies and new technologies. Not There's not a shortage of people willing to take those risks. So yeah, there won't be a black hole. But the question going forward, I think for startups is more, and with AI is, is how, what's the barrier to entry to really start a company that leverages AI and the technology of AI. And there's an argument to be made that actually with AI, because of the compute needed and the expertise needed and the infrastructure needed, that it's really hard for a small company to make a significant kind of, um, inroads into, into, into the whole AI innovation field, meaning you could work on different fields, but you've got the big players spending just billions and billions of dollars on infrastructure and teams, et cetera, on data, all that stuff where they have such a big advantage. Um, it's a big question mark of how can smaller companies really, you know, innovate in that field. And so you've got different, you know, approaches. Um, it's interesting. Open AI has released, um, you know, their AI, their, their APIs, um, to people. And I want to actually suggest 
everyone, if you haven't had the chance to, um, actually, I'll go ahead and this might be an interesting thing to do. Um, if you haven't had the chance to check out um, OpenAI, um, go to beta.openai.com, and then you'll check out. Um, you can. It's a super uh, like a one minute email sign up, and then you can get access to something called Playground. Now, with the Playground is you can actually uh, ask OpenAI's GPT three. They have a new model, actually, DaVinci 003, they released yesterday. You can ask their latest model for, for AI basically any question you want, and um, it'll tell you. Like, for example, tell me a story about how a, um, about how a let's say, how uh, an inventor created a new multi-million dollar product. Okay, and then I'll just click submit, and let's see what GPT three um, comes up with. Once upon a time, there was a young inventor named David. Well, thank you. Who had an incredible idea. He wanted to create a product that could revolutionize the way people live their lives. David worked hard on his idea and eventually created a revolutionary new product. It was a device that could help people manage their finances and make smart investments. <laughs> he called it the Money Minder. The Money Minder was a success. It quickly became popular with people trying to save money and invest their money. Wisely, it wasn't long before David was making millions of dollars off the money minder. David's intention not only changed his own life, but also the lives of countless others. Thanks to his invention, people could save money, manage their finances, and invest wisely. David's intention was a great success and it continues to be popular with people today. His invention has made him a multimillionaire and he is now living his dream. <laughs> Can you believe this? This is all written by AI. <laughs> GPT-3. Crazy, huh? This isn't coming from... Like someone didn't write this on the internet and that he and GPT-3 is copying it. No, actually GPT-3 is actually writing this on the fly, right? This has probably never been written before. I don't know. It's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, funny. I've been working on a financial product or web or web stuff or the past couple of years. I haven't, I haven't had success with it. I've <laughs> been prototyping some stuff. So um, check this out. How much did David make? Okay. David has made millions of dollars of money minder. So what is David doing now? David is now living his dream off of, okay. So anyways, you could, um, that's the gist of it, right? Um, <laughs> but going back to the point, OpenAI and, and some other companies are starting to um, basically open up these core foundational technologies of AI, meaning now you've got this engine that would be hard for a startup to create themselves, right? Because you would need a ton of money, a huge team, ton of compute. That's why OpenAI actually took investment from Microsoft to get some of that money and compute. But now they're starting to open up some of those core technologies as APIs where startups now can tap into these APIs and create their own companies based upon these technologies. So going back to uh, OpenAI's like playground, so you've got um, uh, basically you can access like um, you can access all this stuff um, with their all the functionality through these APIs. API is basically um, a programming pro protocol. You send a request and then you get back the data from right their service. So you can summarize stuff. You could uh, classify stuff you could you could do a bunch of stuff like I, I've been playing around this with this the past week it's, it's quite amazing and I, I think that 
um, over time, you're going to see actually very large companies being built on the technology from other large companies, right? Just like, for example, there are a lot of large companies now that are, have been built upon the technologies of, let's say, iOS and Android, right? And so you can have multi-billion dollar companies, like, for example, uh, Duolingo, uh, who does language learning there, I think valued at three or four billion dollars. Their company is built on the on the on the mobile web or the on the mobile app stores, right? With iOS and Android, yet you're worth billions of dollars, you know, being built on other technologies. And I think we're going to start to see that with AI. You're going to have more companies, be, you know, having billions and billions of dollars of market value created that are built on other companies' technologies. But in order to get into the core technologies, that's going to be hard. And I think um, what Tesla is vying for is they're vying for to become the dominant kind of real world AI technology provider. Um, and it's really, really fascinating to see this in real time. I think it's probably one of the most uh, interesting um, developments um, in the world right now, just to see the progression of AI and its impact in society. I don't think there's going to be really anything um, as significant as AI. Um, in terms of how it impacts um, society. All right, um, Underwater Sunlight says, question, do you think knowing a certain country's traffic laws is a prerequisite for AI to, to work practically flawlessly in that country? Um, I do think um, it's, it, it's not necessarily having a list of the, the law or the rules. It's the AI needs to um, see the situation and they need to have a context, they need to have uh, data, meaning they need to have a lot of video clips of that situation or similar situations so that it knows what to do in a situation like that. So um, uh, what Tesla would need to do is they would need, in a new country, they would need to gather a ton of data uh, of basically videos and feed that those videos. And that's how the neural nets would know how to act in different situations. Like you go on a, a, a light, it's it's purple light or something. What do you do in that situation, right? You the, you need the uh, the AI to, to to have enough data in their neural nets in order to um, be able to know what to do in those situations. So yeah, it will need to know um, the rules of traffic in other countries, and it will get that right as it gets um, more data um, fed to it um, in other countries. All right, Mark says, Dave, uh, does Tesla have the ability to become a $3 trillion company even without Elon as CEO? Yeah, I, I personally uh, think so because when I model, you know, my own projections out five or 10 years out, um, yeah, it, it, it does seem uh, definitely a possibility. I think that the reason why it's a possibility is because Elon has set up um, Tesla's FSD and also putting that into Optimus to a, in a way where it's difficult for others to catch up in the next five years, you know? I mean, sure, there could they could shrink the lead if Tesla falters and other companies execute better, but um, Tesla's in a great position, I think, with, with FSD and the way they're approaching it. Um, I was looking at, uh, I shared earlier, I was looking at Baidu's uh, rollout. They're using like LiDAR and HD maps, and they have supposedly a lot of cars on the road, but yeah, I just don't see that technology improving as fast as vision. Like what Tesla's writing on is they're writing on actually many, many um, hundreds and thousands of, of innovations in the field of AI vision. Meaning Tesla is far from the only player, right? Developing AI vision. Um, it's a huge, huge field globally. 
and there's a ton of progress being done. You know, it's not going to be, I think, too long. I mean, it might be more than a few years, but pretty soon we'll have AI being able to generate like full featured cartoons or 3D, like Pixar, Pixel, Pixar like, you know, animated films from just text that you give it. Like, let's say you feed AI a book that you write or a short story you write or something, they feed them whatever, 50 pages. AI will be able to create a pic Pixar like 3D animated movie off of that. Now, if you think about that, that's crazy, right? Because it's not just the, the AI does it once, but it could be scalable. That's the whole pro that's the whole problem with human uh, human capacity is we're limited by time and our abilities um, to focus and to spend time on certain tasks. But AI, you just whip up another, you know, unit, another compute unit, etc. Um, you're able to scale almost endlessly. Yeah, and if AI could could do, you know, one 3D Pixar like animated film from let's say one 50 page story that you just feed it, um, what is the what are the limitations, right? Um, yeah, for AI. But anyways, yeah, I think people are underestimating what the the um, the amazing uh, kind of field that AI is in the next ten years. Um, I think people are mostly are underestimating the, its impact, how fast it's improving. And I think they're also underestimating um, Tesla's position, right, in that um, AI field as well. All right, um, Tesla bite-sized um, says, "What? Uh, when do you think we could see Tesla Semi FSD? So full self-driving for Tesla Semi. What has bottlenecked is this now is announcement so far? Focus on cars, regulation, increased risk, etc. So could it be announced as Semi event? Yeah. So I think." Uh, a thing, few things with Tesla Semi. I think Tesla has had the Semi ready for quite a long time. Um, so in 2019, I think it was April, Tesla held an autonomy day where they you know, showcased their FSD technology at that time. I went to the event and they had a Tesla Semi there. And I spent about 30 minutes inside the Semi talking with the Tesla engineers who were in charge of the project. And it really, like, they were super confident about the semi back then. This was three years ago or three and a half years ago. They're like, yeah, this thing works, right? They had something figured out. They're still working on some of the, the powertrain stuff, but, you know, they were, it was a legit product. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then actually at the same event, I was talking to uh, Jerome Guillen, who was, um, uh, who ended up heading that as well after being the North America, I think, president. But yeah, I was talking with him with other investors and he was sharing how like, yeah, the semi, like they, it's a huge, huge, not just market, but it's, um, the pro they have a great product, right? And the sense I got was that, you know, Tesla could release a semi and they could have released it a, a, a couple or a couple of years prior. But I think a few factors, one is, um, kind of the lack of batteries that Tesla had back then. And they wanted to prioritize cars because get probably more margin at that time. The second thing is, um, you know, there's a little bit more technology with mega chargers and all this stuff you know, to work out. And the third thing is it's the, the ultimate application for, for semi is FSD semi, right? Full self-driving, right? Uh, large duty trucks. And I think, um, FSD wasn't ready and, you know, they wanted to, you know, focus on the cars, but I think this is an interesting sign that Tesla now is finally ready to release the semi. I think what we have December 1st is the uh, announcement for first deliveries. And I think um, at the event, um, 
you know, they'll talk about the semi. I think they'll be a little bit cautious with um, sh showcasing ambitious ambition for full self-driving. And the reason why is because the truck driving industry, especially in North America, is huge. It's we're talking about you know a lot, a lot of um, of jobs. And Tesla doesn't want to overstep the bounds and say, oh, you know, we're going to get rid of all these jobs. It's going to be a gradual process, right? And I think over time, um, yeah, Tesla needs to navigate that well. And so it's going to be interesting. Let's see what happens on December 1st, how Tesla navigates that. You know, there might be eventually like cars where you have, let's say someone sleep in the, in the lead car, maybe sleeping there. And then, you know, you have uh, um, four or five or even six or seven or 10 semis following that are humanless and maybe they stop by, they sleep and then the person or the human, I guess they don't need to sleep, but let's say the, the one human is kind of overseeing this group of, let's say five or 10 semis that are on the road, right? And because there could be issues, right? And so this person oversees. And so um, there could just be a dramatic increase, right? In logistics and services as shipping goes down. So, I mean, ultimately though, yeah, you're going to see a, a um, I won't say a destruction, but a massive uh, uh, displacement of workers and hopefully we'll find a way to adjust. So anyways, I think yeah, Tesla is going to, it's interesting, a huge potential, huge market. They're going to have to tread wisely, um, but yeah, it has huge impact um, going forward. Um, Yeah, so far as I says, yeah, type question before your question so I can identify it better. Um, all right, Chris uh, Steckety says, as Tesla establishes itself as an AI company, will investors give it a higher multiple than other mature tech companies? Um, I have a little, I wouldn't say cynical, but I'll call it more realistic. I don't think investors in general and analysts slash institutional, you know, money, I, I don't think they really understand technology uh, that much. And I, especially emerging technology, it's really hard. Even people in the tech field, it's really hard to grasp what's going on with emerging technologies. Um, institutional money, big money, typically they're good at numbers. They're good at um, established, already established mature growth, right? Um, they're good at just modeling and um, things that don't change that much, right? Um, when things change, change too much, it really messes up, right? Um, all of the, the financial modeling, et cetera. And so um, because of that, I think it's really um, a reactive thing where analysts and investors typically will react to, it, it'll be a, kind of this thing where Tesla produces you know, a new product, let's say FSD or Robotech or whatever. And um, we're going to see the revenue and the margins and the profits increase due to that. And um, as a reaction, investors and, and analysts, right, understand that through the lens of numbers, right? That's the language of uh, big money is numbers. So yeah, I don't think um, we're going to see too much kind of giving the benefit of the doubt that Tesla has this great lead at technology. I don't, I'm not really seeing that. Um, there's a chance, right, that if Tesla flips a switch, which I don't even know if it's really going to be a switch at the mo at a moment in time, but when they roll out, let's say, robot taxis over, let's say, a six to twenty-four month period where it can gain traction, that there is a moment, there's a light switch where it surprises people, and that they're able to 
you know, get excited about the stock, give it some more valuation. But um, yeah, it's all, there's a lot, you know, um, what if the rollout doesn't go that great, especially in the first six months and there's lots of problems there. It could work uh, both ways as well. Um, Manchas 300 says meta in the AI in three, 10 years. Yeah, you know, people think about meta, 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 like as this like VR experience, but if AI can make 3D quality, like 3D Pixar quality animated films from just, let's say 50 pages of text you feed it, I don't even know if it needs to be per, per se VR lenses, you know what I'm saying? Just the, the experiences that you have interacting with media and products and services, et cetera, is going to just be completely revolutionized. Um, like for example, I, I told you guys in the beginning of this year, I'm working on like a language learning app, but it's in the field of education. But if AI can do stuff like change texts, you know, into crazy stuff, our entire way that we educate people is going to be different. Um, it's going to be unrecognizable you know, in 10 or 20 years. Like it'd be just crazy that, you know, our, our whole education is based on just, you know, some textbooks, writing some workbooks, I don't know, just like it'd be antiquated because, um, the way that AI supercharges enables, you know, media in a different world, but will kids put on VR glasses for that? I don't even know, you know, there's a, there's, there's a downside to VR glasses where, you know, it's like when I try, tried it, it's kind of, it's cool when you're in there, but afterwards you're kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if it's the vertigo effect or something, but you get a little bit dizzy. It's like so different than physical reality. And that gap, like some people accept it and they're okay with it. But I think for most people, that's a difficult gap to, to cross. And people will say technology will fix that, right? Maybe, but let's see it in a sense. Like it hasn't fixed it really completely yet. If it doesn't fix it in the next, you know, several few to several years, what happens is you get a niche, uh, what do you call it? Nichification of the market. Meaning that type of product doesn't appeal on a broad basis to 100, 100 out of a hundred people. Let's say it only appeals to five or 10 out of people out of 100. How are you going to get network effects where you get this, you know, through mass adoption, you get just, it doesn't, it's, it's a tricky thing how, you know, the metaverse is going to work out long-term. Um, but yeah, AI is going to impact yeah um, everything you know um, in many ways. Um, what do I think of a possible UBI tax on Tesla in the future? Well, that yeah, that's way out. UBI just in general, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, I hope we can find a way to incentivize work though, and incentivize productive right um, uh, uh, use of time. That's uh, my um, big big concern with UBI. Um, Adam's Invisible Hands says, any invis investable in education, especially for disabled, I know it's a passion for you. Um, Ravi uh, Dasai says, long-term, how much potentially China retaliation against the US for what you're doing, for what we are doing to their tech companies can affect Tesla? Um, I have a slightly kind of outlier view on, on, on China. Um, most people look at China as this kind of, I, I, as, as, as I have to be, I have to, I have to articulate this in the right way is, is I don't think China is like irrational or 
kind of is stupid in a sense of government. They are very, very practical. They've shown this through their long-term planning. Um, and I don't think they want to kick out Tesla, who is kind of this model of a foreign company in their country. Because if you do that, you kick out not just, you basically you're kicking out all foreign investment, but you also are, are significantly impacting your ability to export your products to other countries. Because if you are not letting companies into their countries, why would other countries let your your companies and your products in the future into their countries, right? So China understands these dynamics. They built their entire economy on trade, right? And so they're not new to this. Um, and that's where I, I, I just don't think it's wise for, for China to boot out Tesla. And I think they know that. Um, and yeah, that's that would be my bet, right, for the future that actually Tesla is actually perhaps um, in a decent position um, in China. Uh, Michael uh, Singleton says, question, do you think Musk will do a phone? Yeah, so <laughs> it's a funny story, man. So there's all these YouTube videos on the so-called Tesla Pi phone. They get like all these crazy view count, right? I think hundreds of thousands or millions of views. I don't know, right? And they claim that Tesla's going to do a phone and Elon's going to do a phone. And it, it was kind of ridiculous all, all the way to the point of just like last week where Elon's like, do I have to do a phone now? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen personally. I, I hope it doesn't in a sense that um, I think it's to build a phone is, is huge, a huge enterprise. It's not the phone. The phone hardware, you could contract out. You can get it done in six months, right? It's not, it's not the issue. The issue is the, the operating system and the, the developer ecosystem. And can you get apps that are as good or even better than native apps on the iPhone, et cetera? That's the big question. Um, have web technologies improved enough where let's say, you know, can you rely on mobile apps, right? Or some type of hybrid version. And a lot of companies are doing more hybrid versions, right? For their native apps. And so can you create some type of system where it's easy to develop your apps on a new platform using kind of web technologies in a hybrid way, making it easier for developers to port their apps, but yet be comparable even better than what's on existing, let's say native iPhone hardware. Lots of questions at, at hand, right? I think the big driving issue Elon is pushing is this whole 30% tax um, or commission that, that Apple takes. Elon thinks it's excessive and it's not just excessive for him, but it's excessive for the entire, let's say, internet economy and ecosystem that rely on native apps for distribution. And it's hurting, you know, a lot of innovation development. Um, it's, yeah, it's a big tax in a sense. And I think Elon has a philosophical um, bent or, you know, thing against that, but now it hits home because Twitter, all their subscription revenue that they get right on iPhones, basically, if you subscribe on iPhone for Twitter, $8 blue, you're giving 30%. So you're giving what over two bucks, right? To, um, uh, yeah, over two bucks to Apple. Right. And so Elon's like, what is Apple even doing for us? Right. It's like, <laughs> all they're doing is letting Twitter in the app store, right, basically. And of course, you've got the technologies, I guess, of the app store, et cetera. But it's like, yeah, it's it's a tough, it's a tough, tough thing to justify 30%, especially for a company like uh, Twitter. A question, do you see Airbnb as a generational business? I've kind of on the fence about this. I've been following them. And yeah, my question about Airbnb, I know they got a decent product. They got a decent like markets, you know, experience, but like, yeah, what's their competitive advantage long-term besides just having some market share, right? 
are they innovating quickly? Are they riding some new technology wave? Like, you know, that's kind of my question with Airbnb. Like, when's the last time you've been surprised by something that Airbnb has done in terms of product, in terms of like, wow, that's amazing. They're moving so fast. You know, sure, they have experiences or other stuff and they're cool, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think Airbnb has the potential to completely re revamp the whole rental market, like long-term rentals in terms of like, 12 months, let's say I want to rent an apartment, like Airbnb should be the first place I go to, you know, they have a chance to, to revamp or to rent, to disrupt the entire real estate market. But I don't know if they have the ambition to do that or the execution. Um, yeah. Um, Alan, um, for, for, or Alan says, Dave, for language learning, are you familiar with the acquisition input hypothesis? Yeah, I think what you're referring to is kind of, kind of the comprehensible input idea. And so with language learning, the, um, one of the outlier hypotheses is rather than focusing on speaking and memorizing all these words right from the very get-go, just focus on under, being able to understand a ton of stuff. So start out with super simple stuff, but just understand it, like listen to it and read it and just get it, you know, a huge foundation of listening and reading um, input that you can understand. It has to be stuff that you can understand or else it gets too discouraging. And as you build that, you will naturally build speaking and writing abilities. It's an outlier method. Um, I talked about it, uh, we discussed it with James Dalma in uh, my last video, but I've been researching it more and I think it's the way to go. And we're prototyping yeah, an app that basically builds on that foundation um, of language learning. So we'll see where it goes. Um, yeah, very interesting stuff. All right, so Islam Mohammed says, will Model 3 refresh use 4680 structural battery pack using Fremont cells as Austin, Austin Ramps 4680 and front and rear casting? Yeah, so the rumor, um, I think uh, Reuters had it out that Tesla's gonna refresh their Model 3 starting Q3 of next year. Um, it's plausible. Um, will they add 4680 structural front and rear? I, well, I think they're gonna add a lot of stuff. Um, depending on if the technology is ready, right, at that time. But front and rear casting is definitely, depends on the 4680 kind of. I think Tesla is it's not necessarily, um, um, yeah, if they can do, you know, 2170 structural too. But yeah, they will use different cells, um, but they will move everything over, right, front and rear casting, structural battery pack, any like stuff like that will be the centerpiece of the technology. What's more interesting, what's also interesting to me is, the next generation vehicle, what are they doing? What are they designing to make it really crazy efficient? Yeah, like you have front and rear casting and 4680 structure battery pack, but what could be even like crazier? What can like make a car half the time, right? Half the cost. Like that's the, the super interesting stuff I think that Tesla is spending most of their um, time with. Um, double O Lin says, did you sell any Tesla shares, Dave? So um, as, as I shared in my previous like videos, like um, I think back in 2020, I did a, a episode called my Tesla exit plan. Uh, this is actually one of my first videos. And I said that generally speaking, um, um, my situation personally is that I kind of accumulated basically enough Tesla shares I, I would be very happy with very early in the back in the day in like 2012 and 2013. Um, that's where basically all my savings went to um, and all our business income. And then 
in 2013, I kind of overextended through kind of long-term options. I got uh, more than I was kind of comfortable with in a sense, because I felt like um, over time um, it would be worth it. And so um, my, my plan is, was back from that day was to reduce my share count to the place where it was kind of the more of the original shares, right? Um, but as Tesla has uh, grown and has increased, I think their potential future plans, I've kind of ad adapted it where I don't want to sell that many because it would be about a third of my shares at least I would I probably need to share to get back down to my original amount. So I came up with this idea. This is in that video where I'm like, Man, I'll share one, I'll sell one to two percent or so, or roughly it could be plus or minus, you know, per year to raise capital so that I could do um, more things with like business, but also um, help people, charity, etc. Right. Um, and the reason is because um, yeah, um, I was able to retire early and without kind of, you know, business income or et cetera, um, um, need something not just to live on that's like taken care of with other stuff, but more, um, stuff to do with, right. To actually make an impact. And so, yeah, that's been my strategy uh, to sell, but this year I've actually paused most all my selling. I, I barely sold anything this whole year with Tesla. I still given some to charity uh, because I, I do some giving through a charitable giving account. But yeah, I felt like this year as the stock has gone down, I, I'm like, I need to pause uh, my selling because I, I think Tesla's future is stronger than I've ever uh, seen. I'm the most excited about Tesla I've ever been as an investor, actually. And um, so I pause it. But I think, um, yeah, uh, um, the downside of that personally is I have less cash to do stuff in terms of impact, not living expensive, but actually like, and that's uh, an important part of of like, what's the point of holding on to Tesla stock for the rest of my life? Like, I don't understand the point. Like, I've got to be able to use some of it, right, to do good with and to make impact. And so, anyways, that's the dilemma for me. Um, yeah, with 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 Tesla, but I know everyone is in a different situation, so it's just a personal anecdote here. All right, guys. Um, wow, man, great questions. I wish I could just continue to do this, but um, yeah, V says, "What is your macroeconomic outlook for 2023?" Yeah, I think there's two things going on, the macro outlook, you know, versus also the stock outlook, because a lot of times, you know, the stock market is looking forward maybe six to nine months out. So the the low point of the stock market might be six to nine months before the the most severe point of the recession, perhaps. So it could actually, yeah, the the stock market is is forward looking. So yeah, 2023, I just don't know, you know? I mean, I do think we, we are, we're going to see probably a recession. I don't know how deep it is. I think there are different scenarios. Um, um, I don't think it'll be too deep. That's my baseline, but who knows? And I think the stock market will proceed about, meaning it'll look forward, right? Um, um, and so we'll probably see a, a, a bottom in the stock market before we see, right, uh, the most severe part of the recession. Just some... Um, things how are you are you worrying about a recession no i don't worry because um uh yeah i'm kind of more long-term focused and my stock holdings are more kind of um they're not i'm not reliant on those for living expenses or or future etc they're more um what i could do for you know for impact later um how would how would you prepare your portfolio for me I, i'm not really making much preparations i just have this um 
idea, I have shared this in previous videos, even when the stock was, you know, whatever at all time highs, I always tend to discount my, my shares by like 70% or so. So let's say when the stock was 1000 pre-split, I was like thinking I wasn't counting my balance or my portfolio value as that price. I was always like discounted 70% because whenever a recession hits, um, you're going to have massive multiple compression and that's what's been happening with Tesla. And so psychologically, it hasn't really like been, I've been prepared for it, meaning, you know, I've, I've already slashed that value previously, um, and, uh, prepared for that. So I've kind of, you know, I'm not, uh, it's just my portfolio personally, isn't something that I'm like dying to access or, or liquidate in the next few years. And so I have a very kind of just slow trickle method of taking some out and using it for impact. But again, other people get, have other needs, right? If you have short-term needs then you're going to be approaching your portfolio, probably different, um, as well. All right, guys, I'm going to go ahead and um, wrap up the stream. Uh, thank you for everyone uh, for tuning in. Uh, it was fun chatting with everyone and catching up. Um, want to wish you guys the best um, as we head into the end of the year and um, take care and we'll see you guys later.